Section 6 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 1, by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3, Lord Falkland, A Moderate and Liberal Church, Part 2. It is evident that Falkland had two sets of friends among his intellectual contemporaries, and that the graver philosophical and theological set, to which Clarendon specially alludes, came in some degree in succession to the poetic friends of his youth. Gradually he abandoned poetry for divinity, and it is in the later years of his residence at Tew, following his second retirement after his father's death, say from 1635 to the spring of 1639, that we may conceive him to have added divines such as Hammond and Sheldon and Morley to his acquaintance, and converted his society into the convivium theologicum so well described by Clarendon. Suckling's well-known lines imply this, while along with his own verses on the death of Ben Jonson, they bring before us a vivid picture of that earlier group of the wits of the town, whose companionship and conversation were so enjoyable to him when in London. It is interesting to notice that Hales and Chillingworth are both mentioned in Suckling's lines, and so we gather that they were amongst Falkland's friends in his earlier, as well as his later, mood of mind, and were indeed his friends and intellectual associates in a sense which can hardly be supposed true of men like Sheldon and Morley. It was natural for Clarendon, writing after the Restoration, to emphasize such names, but Falkland himself would probably have dwelt more upon the bright circle of his more youthful years. Digby, Carew, Killigrew, and Maine, Godolphin, Waller, that inspired train. Footnote. Eclogue on the death of Ben Johnson. Of the less known names of Killigrew and Maine, it may be mentioned that the first was King Charles's jester, and the second Dr. Jasper Maine, a dramatist and versifier, as well as preacher of the period. The same names are found associated with Falkland's own in George Daniel's manuscript poems, the noble Falkland, Digby, Carew, Maine, Bowman, Sands, etc. End of footnote. The list is more fully given by Suckling, and deserves to be transferred to our pages for its own sake, as well as for the pleasant glimpse which it gives us of a bygone literary society, of which Falkland was evidently a conspicuous member. Quote, there Selden, and he sat hard by the chair, Wenneman not far off, which was very fair, Sands with Townsend, for they keep no order, Digby and Shillingworth a little further. And there was Lucan's translator, too, and he that makes God speak so big in's poetry. Selwyn and Walter, and Bartlett's both the brothers, Jack Vaughan and Porter, and Divers others. The first that broke silence was good old Ben, prepared before with canary wine, and he told them plainly he deserved the bays, for his were called works, where others were but plays. Tom Carew was next, but he had a fault that would not well stand with a laureate. His muse was hard-bound, and the issue of his brain was seldom brought forth but with trouble and pain. Will Davenant, ashamed of a foolish mischief that he had got lately travelling in France, modestly hoped the handsomeness of his muse might any deformity about him excuse. Suckling next was called, but did not appear, but straight one whispered Apollo with the ear, that of all men living he cared not for it, he loved not the muses so well as his sport. Watt Montague now stood forth to his trial, and did not so much as expect a denial, but witty Apollo asked him first of all if he understood his own pastoral. Hales, set by himself, most gravely did smile to see them about nothing keep such a coil. Apollo had spied him, but, knowing his mind, passed by, and called Falkland that sat just behind. He was of late so gone with divinity that he had almost forgot his poetry, though to say the truth, and Apollo did know it, he might have been both his priest and his poet. It is impossible to draw out into the light such a group of names, some of whom have left no impress upon our literature, and no memory of any kind. 
but passing by in the meantime Hales and Chillingworth, who will afterwards appear prominently in our pages, there are a few of the others that claim recognition both in connection with Falkland personally and with our subject. Selden's is the first, and in some respects the most distinguished. He was at this time, say 1637, when Suckling's verses were published, about fifty years of age, and had long enjoyed an exceptional reputation for the extent and variety of his learning. His famous treatise on tithes had appeared about twenty years before, 1618. By the help of a strong body and vast memory, says Wood, he had become, quote, a prodigy in most parts of learning, especially in those which were not common. He had great skill in the divine and human laws. He was a great philologist, antiquary, herald, linguist, statesman, and what not, close quote. Clarendon is even more enthusiastic. Quote, he was of so stupendous learning in all kinds and in all languages, as may appear in his excellent and transcendent writings, that a man would have thought he had been entirely conversant among books, and had never spent an hour but in reading and writing. Yet his humanity, courtesy, and affability was such that he would have been thought to have been bred in the best courts, but that his good nature, charity, and delight in doing good, and in communicating all he knew, exceeded that breeding." while in his writings his style quote, seems harsh and sometimes obscure in his conversation he was the most clear discourser and had the best faculty of making hard things easy and presenting them to the understanding of any man that hath been known a great friend of ben jonson he belonged himself in a slight way to the poetic fraternity as an occasional writer of verses in english as well as in greek and latin falkland greatly admired him and according to clarendon knew him so well that he became on an important occasion on which charles wished to influence selden the medium of communication between him and the king he may have learned from the older statesman's cynical thoughtfulness and contempt of extremes something of his own clearness and liberality in religious matters selden's facility during the troubles that ensued has been blamed but there is no reason to doubt that he was animated throughout by a sincere love of liberty that liberty which according to his own chosen motto was above everything he had been early disgusted at the bishops by the treatment to which they subjected him after the publication of his book on tithes their usage sunk deep into his stomach and he was heartily glad when the storm swept them away but while he worked with the puritan party he was entirely free from their prejudices a story is told by whitelock of the delight which he took in perplexing some of the divines in the westminster assembly of which he was an active member sometimes when they had cited a text of scripture to prove their assertions he would say quote, perhaps in your little pocket bibles with gilt leaves which they would often pull out and read the translation may be thus but the greek and hebrew signify thus and thus quote, and so would totally silence them there is as much insolence as wit it must be allowed in this story many of the westminster divines must have been quite a match for even selden in biblical learning yet a tradition of this kind serves to show the spirit of the great lawyer he had evidently no love for the clergy either episcopal or puritan and especially detested clerical prejudices, the pretensions to special orthodoxy, and the dogmatic opinionativeness so prevalent in his time. One of the best and most characteristic of his sayings in his Table Talk, which is hardly worthy of his reputation as a whole, clearly and admirably shows this. Quote, "'Tis vain to talk of an heretic, for a man, for his heart, can think no otherwise than he does think. In the primitive times there were many opinions, nothing scarce but some or other held." One of these opinions being embraced by some prince, and received into his kingdom, the rest were condemned as heresies, and his religion, which was but one of the several opinions, first is said to be orthodox, and so to have continued ever since the apostles. George Sandus, the Sands of the poem, 
was one of Falkland's choicest friends not mentioned by Clarendon at all. He was the youngest son of the Archbishop of York, whose sufferings in the cause of the Reformation and subsequent promotion in the reign of Elizabeth are well known, and the brother of Hooker's pupil associated with the half-pathetic, half-ludicrous story of the great author of the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity, rocking the cradle in his parsonage at Drayton Beauchamp. He was more than thirty years Falkland's senior, having been born in 1577, but peculiar ties of sympathy and affection seem to have united them. Twice he inscribes verses to my noble friend Mr. George Sandus upon his excellent paraphrase on the Psalms, and again upon his Job, Ecclesiastes, and the Lamentations, clearly, learnedly, and eloquently paraphrased. The lines to Hugo Grotius, from which we have already quoted, are also prefixed to a translation by Sandus. He was a great traveller, as well as a translator and versifier, having visited not only the several parts of Europe, but many cities and countries of the East, extending to the Holy Land. His travels were published in 1615, and widely read with great interest. Falkland evidently felt a special attraction in his fame as a traveller, and his stores of foreign observation and experience. He assures Grotius, quote, None hath a larger heart, a fuller head, for he hath seen as much as you have read. The nearer countries passed, his steps have pressed the new-found world, and trod the sacred east, where, his brows due, the loftier palms do rise where the proud pyramids invade the skies, and, as all think, who his rare friendship own, deserves no less a journey to be known. His travels were his choice, and all those numerous realms returned again, anew he travelled over with his pen. And Homer to himself doth entertain with truths more useful than his muse could feign. Next, Ovid's transformations he translates with so rare art that those which he relates yield to this transmutation, and the change of men to birds and trees appears not strange. Next, the poetic parts of scripture on his loom he weaves, and Job and Solomon his pen restores with all that heavenly choir, and shakes the dust from David's solemn lyre, from which, from all with just consent, he won the title of the English Buchanan. In the verses directly inscribed to Sandus there is the same admiring enthusiasm, combined with a genuine warmth of personal feeling. Stress is laid upon the smoothness of Sandus' versification, which has also been highly commended by Dryden. Falkland contrasts it with his own imperfect attempts. Quote, Such is the verse thou writest, that who reads thine can never be content to suffer mine. Such is the verse I write, that reading mine I hardly can believe I have read thine, and wonder that their excellence once known I nor correct nor yet conceal mine own. Close quote. Again he pays his friend a compliment, more than once repeated, for the high and sacred strain of his verse. Quote, now thou hast diverted to a purer path thy quill, and changed Parnassus mount to Zion's hill, so that blessed David might almost desire to hear his harp thus echoed by thy lyre. Those who make wit their curse, who spend their brain, their time, and art in looser verse to gain damnation and a mistress, till they see how constant that is, how inconstant she, may from this great example learn to sway the parts they're blessed with some more blessed way. Close quote. Occasional allusions may be traced to the questions of the time which seem to indicate a fellow-feeling and coincidence of opinion betwixt the two friends regarding the favorite ideas of the Laudians and the absurd pretensions of popery. Referring to the site of the early Eastern churches described by Sandus in his travels, he says, quote, In whom these notes, so much required, be agreement, miracles, antiquity, which can a never-broke succession show from the apostles down, here bragged of so, so but confute her most immodest claim, who scorn apart, yet to be all doth aim. 
Finally, there is in the closing poem to Sandus, probably the last that Falkland wrote, a fine and touching passage, which seems to forecast his own death, the pathetic beauty of which mingles strangely and solemnly with cheerful anticipations of his friend's future fame. Quote, Howe'er, I finish here. My muse, her days, ends in expressing thy deserved praise, whose fate in this seems fortunately cast to have so just an action for her last. And since there are who have been taught that death inspireth prophecy, expelling breath, I hope when these foretell what happy gains posterity shall reap from these thy pains, nor yet from these alone, but how thy pen, earth-like, shall yearly give new gifts to men, and thou fresh praise and we fresh good receive. The so-taught will not belief refuse to the last accents of a dying muse. Close quote. Of Thomas Carew and Sir William Davenant, the former the well-known author of some exquisite love verses, and one of the most celebrated wits of the time, the latter, poet laureate after Johnson, it is unnecessary to speak. Both were eminent members of the poetic fraternity with which Falkland mingled, but there is no reason to think that either was among his special friends. With Johnson himself, however, his relations were highly cordial and intimate, while difference of age lent something of respectful admiration to his affection. Johnson had already learned to know and appreciate Falkland in those early years, before 1631, when he and Sir Henry Morrison attracted attention by their youthful friendship, quote, till either grew a portion of the other, and lived to be the great Sir names and titles by which all made claims unto the virtue, nothing perfect done but as a Carey or a Morrison. Close quote. At that time Johnson was the acknowledged head of English literature. He was also still active and imperial in London intellectual society, although self-indulgence and a stroke of palsy had made ravages on his massive frame. Footnote. Johnson's habits of self-indulgence in his later years are well known. Suckling probably alludes to them in the lines, Old Ben prepared before with canary wine. Whatever else he wanted, he was sure, according to Isaac Walton, not to want wine, of which he usually took too much before he went to bed, if not oftener and sooner. End of footnote. He held his court in a place well known as the Devil Tavern, near Temple Bar, and hither all aspiring literary enthusiasts flocked. To be admitted to the Guild of Literature, which assembled in the great room in this tavern, called the Apollo, was to be sealed of the tribe of Ben, in the literary cant of the day. Whatever may have been his faults, Johnson was, like his later namesake, a powerful and varied genius, whose great qualities are not too highly extolled even in Falkland's verse. The lines upon his death are, upon the whole, our poet's most elaborate performance. They are in the form of an eclogue, in which two shepherds, Hylas and Melibius, discourse. And this absurd arrangement detracts from the naturalness and simplicity of the feeling. Yet it breaks out here and there in true tones as well as in elaborate eulogy. It is a doubtful problem, not easy to resolve, quote, which in his works we most transcendent see wit, judgment, learning, art, or industry. His learning such, no author old or new except his reading, that deserved his view. And such his judgment, so exact his test as what was best in books, as what books best, that had he joined those notes his labors took from each most praised and praise-deserving book, and could the world of that choice treasure boast, it need not care, though all the rest were lost. And such his wit, he writ past what he quotes, and his productions far exceed his notes. So in his works, where aught inserted grows, the noblest of the plants engrafted shows, that his adopted children equal not the generous issue his own brain begot. So great his art, that much which he did write gave the wise wonder and the crowd delight. Each sort, as well as sex, admired his wit, the he's and she's, the boxes and the pit, and who less liked within did rather choose to tax their judgments than suspect his muse. 
with thoughts and wills purged and amended rise from the ethic lectures of his comedies where the spectators act and the shamed age blusheth to meet her follies on the stage where each man finds some light he never sought and leaves behind some vanity he brought whose politics no less the minds direct than these the manners nor with less effect when his majestic tragedies relate all the disorders of a tottering state all the distempers which on kingdoms fall when ease and wealth and vice are general of the other special names mentioned by suckling and in falkland's own lines previously quoted digby Wenneman, godolphin waller montague and suckling himself all with the exception of suckling and montague live in clarendon's pages extended quote sir kenelm digby was a person very eminent and notorious throughout the whole course of his life from his cradle to his grave of an ancient family and noble extraction and inherited a fair and plentiful fortune notwithstanding the attainder of his father he was a man of a very extraordinary person and presence which drew the eyes of all men upon him which were more fixed by a wonderful graceful behavior a flowing courtesy and civility and such a volubility of language as surprised and delighted and though in another man it might have appeared to have somewhat of affectation it was marvellously graceful in him and seemed natural to his size and mould of his person to the gravity of his motion and the tune of his voice and delivery he had a fair reputation in arms of which he gave an early testimony in his youth in some encounters in spain and italy and afterwards in an action in the mediterranean sea in a word he had all the advantages that nature and art and an excellent education could give him which with a great confidence and presentness of mind buoyed him up against all prejudices and disadvantages which would have suppressed and sunk any other man but never clouded or eclipsed him from appearing in the best places and the best company and with the best estimation and satisfaction digby was a notorious pervert having been educated a protestant although his father was a catholic and suffered for his share in the gunpowder plot his perversion took place in france about sixteen thirty five and from this time he appears to have made himself conspicuous in the french capital for his constant intrigues with the jesuits and parade of his new persuasion to the prejudice of the english church his doings were the subject of elaborate negotiation betwixt lord leicester then in paris and laud in the early summer of sixteen thirty eight aubrey says that he was called the mirandula of his age and had such a goodly handsome person and so graceful elocution and noble address that had he been dropped out of the clouds in any part of the world he would have made himself respected he admits however that the jesuits who knew him well said twas true but then he must not stay there above six weeks the fact seems to be that with striking superficial qualities and an imposing air of ability sir kenelm digby was a man distinguished more by a certain restless liveliness of nature than by any higher attributes of head or heart he belonged to the falkland set before sixteen thirty three but there is no evidence of any special or more cordial intimacy betwixt him and falkland with sir francis wenman however falkland was allied by the closest ties footnote there can be no reasonable doubt that the Wenneman of Suckling's lines was Sir Francis Wenman, Falkland's neighbor in Oxfordshire, although Suckling's editor, the Reverend Alfred Suckling, LLB, does not seem to have perceived this. End of footnote. They were not only associates of the same circle in town, but neighbors in the country, and in so entire friendship and confidence that Sir Francis had great authority in the society of all Falkland's friends and acquaintance. Of ancient and noble family, possessed of a competent estate, and of high repute for wisdom and integrity wenman was greatly esteemed at court but he preferred being considered simply a country gentleman he was a man adds clarendon quote, 
of great sharpness of understanding and of a piercing judgment no man better understood the affections and temper of the kingdom or indeed the nature of the nation or discerned further the consequence of councils and with what success they were like to be attended he was a very good latin scholar but his ratiocination was above his learning and the sharpness of his wit incomparable he was equal to the greatest trust and employment if he had been ambitious of it or solicitous for it but his want of health produced a kind of laziness of mind which disinclined him to business and he died a little before the general troubles of the kingdom which he foresaw with wonderful concern and when many wise men were weary of living so long sidney godolphin was a youth about falkland's own age trained at oxford and recently returned from his travels abroad quote, there was never so great a mind and spirit contained in so little room so large an understanding and so unrestrained a fancy in so very small a body so that the lord falkland used to say merrily that he thought it was a great ingredient into his friendship for mr godolphin that he was pleased to be found in his company where he was the properer man and it may be the very remarkableness of his little person made the sharpness of his wit and the composed quickness of his judgment and understanding the more notable he had been abroad on diplomatic employment with the earl of leicester and seems to have coveted advancement with the court at home but his constitution was hypochondriacal and he loved very much to be alone and to retire amongst his books Quote, he was contented to be reproached by his friends with laziness and was of so nice and tender a composition that a little rain or wind would disorder him and divert him from any short journey he had most willingly proposed to himself insomuch as when he rid abroad with those in whose company he most delighted if the wind chanced to be in his face he would after a little pleasant murmuring suddenly turn his horse and go home the outbreak of the civil war however roused him to energy and he embarked with vigor and earnestness in the royal cause he put himself into the first troops which were raised in the west for the king and bore the uneasiness and fatigue of winter marches with an exemplary courage and alacrity like his friend he fell gallantly fighting in the same fatal year sixteen forty three the victim of too brave a pursuit of the enemy into an obscure village in devonshire edmund waller we feel almost reluctant to number amongst falkland's friends his genius may be held to redeem his weakness the excellence and power of his wit and pleasantness of his conversation are allowed even by clarendon who does not spare him to have been of magnitude enough to cover a world of very great faults but his political cowardice is a reproach to the moderate party which numbered him amongst its members and with all his brilliant poetic gifts and social accomplishments waller's seems to have been a mean and poor nature selfish and pleasure-loving in prosperity and abject and servile in adversity society pardoned his public baseness for his private pleasantries which had power to reconcile him to those whom he had most offended and provoked having forfeited his life by his treachery to the parliament he saved it at the expense of others and continued to his age says our portrait painter exquisitely with that rare felicity that his company was acceptable where his spirit was odious and he was at least pitied where he was most detested falkland's friendship with him seems to have been chiefly in the earlier years of his literary enthusiasm before the political struggles which broke down waller's integrity poetic tastes united them and perhaps a common relation to dr morley who had read and studied with waller and who is said although this scarcely seems likely to have introduced him to falkland's society footnote clarendon says this but waller's first biographer asserts that it was his connection with the falkland society that brought him acquainted with morley End of footnote his lines to my lord falkland are not distinguished by any particular warmth or poetic skill but they show a graceful and happily expressed interest in the fate of his friend when he went forth with the king in the first scottish expedition in sixteen thirty nine 
to civilize and to instruct the North. Footnote. The following are perhaps the best lines. Quote, ah, noble friend, with what impatience all that know thy worth, and know how prodigal of thy great soul thou art, longing to twist bays with that ivy which so early kissed thy youthful temples, with what horror we think on the blind events of war and thee, to fate exposing that all-knowing breast among the throng as cheaply as the rest, where oaks and brambles, if the copse be burned, confounded lie, to the same ashes turned. Close quote. End of footnote. Suckling himself, and Watt Montague, claim to be mentioned in connection with our subject for special reasons. Both were friends of Falkland, but not merely on this account do they deserve notice. Suckling, strange as it may appear to those who only know his career as a poet, wrote a brief religious treatise, entitled An Account of Religion by Reason. There is little of thought or genuine argument in the treatise. It is the work of an elegant literateur handling a subject which he knows imperfectly, and only from the outside. But the mere fact is a testimony to the theological excitement which then everywhere pervaded society, and indicates the desire there must have been in many minds, besides those whose writings and speculations have come to the surface, to examine the subject of religion rationally. Suckling avows that he feared the charge of Socinianism in his undertaking. Then, as in later times, this charge was recklessly applied to all who thought for themselves in religion, or, in other words, who did not take a side with either theological extreme. Every man, he says, that offers to give an account of religion by reason is suspected to have none at all. Yet he has made no scruple to run that hazard, not knowing why a man should not use the best weapon his Creator hath given him for his defence. The treatise itself, if only a meagre and imperfect sketch of the great subjects which it touches, the Trinity, Incarnation, Passion, and Resurrection of our Lord, is substantially orthodox. God is declared, quote, to be one and but one, it being gross to imagine two omnipotents, for then neither would be so. Yet since this good is perfectly good, and perfect goodness cannot be without perfect love, nor perfect love without communication, nor to an unequal or created, for then it must be inordinate, we include a second co-eternal, though begotten, nor are these contrary, though they seem to be so. Thus theologized the gay suckling at Bath in the year 1637, and although the points of contact betwixt him and Falkland must have been superficial rather than real, we can imagine them not only contending for the laurel, as depicted in the well-known verses, a contention in which our poet would have had no chance with him, but also trying their strength in religious argument during those stirring years. Suckling's fate was a sad one. Elected along with his friend a member of the Long Parliament, he had so far at first joined in the general outcry against Strafford. But, with a slight hold on the deeper principles at stake in the contest, he had left the popular party even before the impeachment, and madly lent himself to a design for rescuing the great Earl from the Tower. The design having been discovered, a charge of high treason was issued by the Parliament against Suckling and the other conspirators. Footnote. The affair is known as Goring's Conspiracy. End of footnote. He fled to the continent, and there, in disgrace and penury, he terminated his life by his own hand before the close of 1642. He is said by Aubrey to have been only twenty-eight years of age. The same gossiping authority adds, quote, He was of middle stature and slight strength, brisk round eye and reddish face, his head not very big, his hair a kind of sand color, and his beard turned up naturally, so that he had a brisk and graceful look. Close quote. Watt Montague, we may certainly say, was the same Walter Montague with whom Falkland corresponded on the subject of popery, and whose letter, with Falkland's reply, is printed along with the Discourse on Infallibility. He was the author of The Shepherd's Paradise, the pastoral alluded to so dubiously in Suckling's verses. Footnote. 
The editor adds, in corroboration of our statement in the text, that Watt Montague was a papist and suspected of having been concerned in the perversion of Lady Newburgh. On that occasion, he adds, quote, It is said in a letter of Lord Conway's, The king did use such words of Watt Montague and Sir Toby Matthew, another of Suckling's poets, that the fright made Watt keep his chamber longer than his sickness would have detained him. Close quote. End of footnote. His letter to Falkland is brief and slight. It goes over the usual ground of the necessity of a continuously visible church, and the question of, where was the Protestant church before Luther? Falkland's reply is acute, ingenious, and satisfactory, and contains at least one good hit on the point of the church's visibility. His patristic studies had convinced him that neither the Roman nor the Protestant church could find their exact parallel in the early Christian ages. Neither of these churches, therefore, he argued, have been always visible, in the sense contended for by Montague, but with the significant difference in the two cases, quote, that we are most troubled to show our church in the later and more corrupt ages, and they, the Roman Catholics, theirs in the first and purest, that we can least find ours at night, and they theirs at noon. Close quote. So far as his general argument is concerned, it is very much the same as that to be found in his Discourse on Infallibility, and will remain for consideration when we come to examine this discourse and his general position on the subject of religious authority. Such was the brilliant literary circle in which Falkland mingled in the earlier half of that significant decade which preceded the great constitutional struggle which was destined to end in the Civil War. If we add to the background of the picture Hobbes, who returned to England in 1631 and remained till 1634, and of whom it is said that Falkland was a great friend and admirer, it would be difficult to conceive a more remarkable intellectual coterie. Poetry and literature in its lighter forms were no doubt its chief interests, and as yet probably these were the chief employments of our intellectual enthusiast. The fact that his own poetic vein is found flowing as early as 1631, on the occasion of the death of Dr. Dunn, may be held to indicate this. However, with the graver interests which subsequently occupied him, he did not abandon poetry, as some of his verses, such as those to Grotius, and probably the closing lines to Sandus, are at least as late as 1640. After the extracts which we have already given from Falkland's poems, it is unnecessary that we should quote much further from them. With the exception of the lines on Dr. Dunn, and a considerably longer poem, indeed the longest of the series, upon the death of the lady Marquis Hamilton, cast, like the eclogue on Johnson, into the artificial form of the pastoral dialogue, we have quoted something from them all. Footnote. She was a Villiers, and the first wife of King Charles's friend, James, Marquis, and afterwards Duke of Hamilton. End of footnote. There is a peculiar tenderness in the lines on Lady Hamilton, whose beauty and high character seem to have specially inspired our poet, and the rural imagery which abounds in it is touched sometimes with a graceful and charming felicity, as, for example, when Chloris, one of the interlocutors of the poem, says of her lover, quote, His best of wheat and cream before me pours, brings me his fairest fruit, his freshest flowers. What birds his twigs, what fish his nets can take, all that his silkworms or his bees can make. The friskinkst calves and kids his pastures hold, and purest lambs the honor of his fold. Or again, when she describes the courtiers weeping for Lady Hamilton, who had been Lady of the Queen's bedchamber, and a great confidant of her royal mistress, quote, Now wearied with their sorrows, and their way near the fresh banks of silver Thames they lay, and wept so fast as if they meant to try to weep a flood like that they wept it by whose faces, bowed and bright and moist, did show like lilies loaded with the morning dew. The description of the lady herself, as she had been used to walk, by fairest Greenwich, also deserves to be quoted. 
often in the sun's declining heat she chloris says again quote, would view the downs where we our flocks did keep and stay to mark the bleating of our sheep and often from her height hath stooped to praise our country sports and hear our country lays sharing with us after her ended walk our homely cates and our more homely talk what beauty did in that fair form reside what any greatness hath excepting pride eyes of so modest yet so bright a flame to see her and to love her was the same and if by chance when she did near us stand her bright smooth palm but touched my ruder hand that did both senses so at once delight the purest swans seemed neither soft nor white but we cannot extend our extracts or indeed our notice of this aspect of falkland's life and intellectual activity as a whole his poems will hardly bear criticism in comparison with the melodious sweetness and gay sparkling vivacity to be found in the happier efforts of suckling or carew or even with the smoother verse of sandus not to speak of the vigorous and more varied muse of such poetic chiefs as ben jonson waller and cowley dr earle one of his later theological friends quote, would not allow falkland to be a good poet though a great wit he writ not a smooth verse but a great deal of sense Close quote. summary as this judgment is there is a great deal of truth in it falkland's poetic vein does not run smoothly with that liquid clearness and bright flow of expression without which even a strong and rich genius fails to yield poetry or at least such poetry as seizes and charms men's hearts and becomes a possession which they do not willingly let die and so his poems passed away almost entirely from the memory of his own generation and the generations which followed and it has remained to our time to draw attention to them and even to collect them together for the first time footnote attention was first drawn to lord falkland's poems by mr mitford in eighteen thirty five in the gentleman's magazine volume one fifty eight and only last year eighteen seventy one they have been collected and edited for the first time after the original texts with memorial introduction and notes by the rev a b grossart the slight volume is printed for private circulation and mr grossart deserves the thanks of all admirers of falkland for his painstaking enthusiasm End of footnote withal it must be admitted that they are full of earnest poetic enthusiasm they glow no less than his prose with a genuine life of thought and feeling and as we have seen there are not a few delightful bits both of imaginative picturesqueness and of vigorous elusive versification which deserve to be remembered in our poetic annals End of chapter three part two